We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1990's King of New York, written by Nicholas St. John and directed by Abel Ferrara. Here's a clip. Frank White is a free man. How come you never came to see me? Who wanted to see you in a cage, man? He served his time. What can we expect from the reformed Frank White? I want to be mayor. He paid his debt. Go someplace where you can stay out of trouble. But some things don't change. From here on, nothing goes down unless I'm involved. No blackjack, no dope deals, no nothing. You're waiting years for this. I know what you're up to, White. Forget it. I'm going to make you and your friends disappear long before that. Are you arresting me? Frank's Park Avenue attorney can get him out in 10 minutes. 10 minutes later! I feel no remorse. I got a quarter million dollar contract on anyone involved in this case. The cops tried to stop him their way. I'm not your problem. I'm just a businessman. Now they'll have to do it his way. There's only one way to get Frank. Christopher Walken, King of New York. You expected to get away with killing all these people? I never killed anybody that didn't deserve it. All right, that was a clip from King of New York. Uh, released in 1990, again written by Nicholas St. John and directed by Abel Ferrara. Uh, joining me to talk about this film and the chooser of this film, for which he may have to explain himself to me, is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? What do you mean I have to explain myself? What are you talking about? This movie's like a masterpiece. <laughs> That's what I'm going to need ex- explanation on because I did not fall into that. Uh, I, I don't fall into that opinion. Not that I thought it was bad or anything, but again, this is we'll, we'll get to it. Um, and also joining us, who may be also able to explain this, is uh, Simon Howell. You know what? I can't explain vibes to you, Patrick. I was thinking about that, just how subjective film can be, and that, that this is something I think that some people are going to see things in, they can relate to parts of this movie that I just can't, that connect with them. I Definitely, I watch this movie and I see Lawrence Fishburne and I think that's me. <laughs> I saw like 
1990 cop gangster movie, but without any distinguishing features. That's kind of what I saw. Um, you know what, Patrick? There's a movie that was also released in the early 90s, I believe 1992, starring Wesley Snipes. It's called White Men Can't Jump. And him and Woody Harrelson's character get into this big debate about how they can't hear or listen to Jimi Hendrix. The problem is not about seeing the movie. It's about feeling the movie, Patrick. You can't, you can't feel the movie. You got to feel it. As I was watching this movie last night, I realized I could not feel this movie. Now, there's a lot of movies that are considered Stone Cold classics that I cannot feel. So I just accept that about myself. But I'm, I'm interested in hearing you guys. I, I like the filmmaking in this movie, but I'm more interested in hearing your guys' take on why this is a, uh, a masterpiece. I float around the word masterpiece, and I'm not entirely sure if it is, but I do love this movie. This movie came out in 1990, one of the greatest years ever for cinema. Just look at the list of movies released in 1990. It's absolutely incredible. But in the early 90s, I remember there was three movies starring Wesley Snipes that I used to watch over and over and over. And it was White Man Can't Jump, New Jack City, and King of New York. Now, I know Wesley Snipes has a minor role in the movie, but the reason why my friends and I rented the movie to begin with at the video store was because we were huge fans of New Jack City, White Men Can't Jump. So I watched King of New York on video a few years after it actually got theatrically released, and I was mind blown, blown away. As a kid, I was actually like big into hip hop, still am, but like really big into hip hop as a kid to the, to the point where I actually had my own hip hop band. We were actually really good. Like I would DJ and MC and we won a bunch of talent shows across the city of Montreal until I decided to like walk away from it and do something else with my life. But the point is, when I watched this movie for the first time, there's a few things that stood out. First of all, yes, we had movies like Menace to Society, Boys in Hood and so on and so forth. But this movie chose to use Schooly D, who was this artist that I think I was like the only person that I knew of that actually listened to Schooly D. Like nobody I knew, nobody that went to my high school, nobody I played ball with, nobody listened to Schooly D. So when Schooly D popped up in the soundtrack, I was like, I lost my mind. And when I say popped up in the soundtrack, there's like an entire sequence which is scored to one of his songs. So... That kind of like floored me back in the day. Schooly D is like, he's like a big thing in the hip hop world. He's considered like the original gangster rapper. You can argue if he is or not, doesn't really matter. So there's a soundtrack. Then there's Larry Fishborn. So remember, I went into this movie thinking Wesley Snipes because I heard Wesley Snipes was in the movie. I had no idea who Christopher Walken was back in the days, right? But then I see this, 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 this cat, like back then he was called Larry. I mean, the guy just, like, stole the show. His performance in this movie is incredible. Like, when I watch Abel Ferrer movies, I kind of think the same thing when I look at old-school wrestling videos when wrestlers used to cut promos. And, like, whatever drugs those dudes were, were taking back in the day, they were, like, they were like some good drugs because they got the best performances out of guys like that. Like, his performance in this movie, I wouldn't be shocked if he was actually on drugs. He's so good. He's so good. Like, I mean, the opening scene alone, like, we're going to talk about great scenes, right? That opening scene, well, not opening scene, the first scene, the introduction to his character, Jimmy Jump, with Steve Buscemi also in that very same scene, before these guys were ever, like, big players, big stars in Hollywood. I was just like, man, this is like, this is like, this is right up there with Brian De Palma's Car Carlitos way. Of course, you got Christopher Walken, and I think this is hands down his best performance i don't think there's an argument to be made yes there are iconic scenes like a true romance and pulp fiction but his performance in this movie is by far his best he's incredible incredible so you got this incredible cast you got david caruso you got oh my god steve buscemi you got all these great guys 
And then what I love about the movie in terms of like the direction is it feels like this fever dream. Like it, it doesn't feel like it's grounded in reality and it's done on purpose. It feels like a fantasy or the fantasy of Frank White. Like for all I know, maybe this is his dream. Maybe he's in prison dreaming this. So I like the contrast between a movie like King of New York, which was released in 1990, and Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. Add on the fact that it's actually shot on location in the 90s in New York City and the cinematography. I just love this movie. There's there's so much I want to say right now, but I'm eight minutes into the podcast and you guys need to speak. Well, I was four when this came out, so I didn't I don't have any of the cultural baggage associated with it to make it uh, seem cool. I can I can tell you this. I had no idea who's I never heard the name Schooly D until Rick put it in our Slack message board a couple <laughs> days ago. <laughs> um, I, I'm not familiar with Schooly D either. I'll be honest, although I do listen to a, a fair fair amount of rap. Um, Abel Ferrara, for those who don't know, is uh, a huge deal among a certain type of cinephile. Um, I guess the people you would have called uh, vulgar auteurists about 15 years ago, and now I don't know what they're called. Um, but for some people, Abel Ferrara is like the greatest director of all time. Um, he's one of those guys who just, uh, as I said, he's a vibe guy. And right now, movies are all about vibes because pop culture is all about vibes. Um, because we're all stuck inside, so everything is a vibe. Uh, and th- and th- that's maybe one reason why uh, I think Ferrara's movies will continue to be very popular among those people, because they're so vibey. And I've only seen a few of them. Uh, King of New York is my favorite that I've seen. Well, Simon, I can tell you that I've seen a lot of his movies, like almost every single film up until maybe the late 2000s. And I think King of New York is hands down his best movie. And when you talk about feel and vibe and style, there's a lot of filmmakers like, for example, Nicholas Winding Refn. Like their movies have this specific vibe to it. Like a lot of people will criticize directors like that for being style over substance. But the thing about King of New York is he really gets the best out of his actors. Like the performances are are amazing. The reason why a lot of people do not cling on to the film or don't really love it as much as I do is because of the actual script, the story, the plot. But to me, it's it's more of this this series of vignettes, like a bunch of scenes, as opposed to something like Goodfellas, where it tells this incredible story that, that takes place over like ten years and follows this like criminal uh, mastermind, right? So it's a completely different film than than the rest of the um, the crime picks that you would see in the early nineties. Uh, so I, I don't know. There, there's something about it that I like, and I I totally understand why someone like Patrick or Roger Ebert back in the day didn't get sucked into the character and the story and the vibe and the feel of the movie. Like it totally makes sense because it is one of those movies, right? Yeah. Vibes are very, I mean, that that's a tricky thing to actually, you know, connect with a lot of people on. It's just, it's a personal thing. If you, if you don't vibe with something, you're just never going to, you're, you're most likely never, ever going to. So first of all, there, yeah, the script is, it's, it's not, I, I don't want to say poorly written. It's just that it's very thin. It's a, it's a very thin script, and the, the characters are very thin. So the performances, like, they had to be kind of eccentric in order to to, to flesh any of those characters out, which I think... Um, but I guess I never connect with hip-hop movies, dude. The only one I like is Friday, <laughs> and I don't know why, but that's more of a neighborhood movie to me, so I, I, I see it kind of different. 
but I didn't grow up with any hip hop whatsoever. And, and that's just a, a musical genre that I don't listen to at all or like very, very rarely. Like there's a, a little bit. The hip hop for me when I was younger played a major role in me sort of like taking interest in watching the movie. But I think what really won me over was the setting, the location, New York mm -hmm. City. This is a movie in which every character dies at the end of the film. Mm -hmm. This is the movie that Tarantino wanted to make, but Abel Ferreira beat him to making the movie. So I was going to choose New Jack City. And so I sat down, I rented New Jack City, spent my $5, watched the movie. And the reason why I chose New Jack City to begin with is because I know you tend to like the same movies as Roger Ebert. And Roger Ebert was a huge fan of New Jack City back in the days when it was released. Has that how that tendency has worked out? That I have you noticed? Because I don't, I don't pay attention to Robert. I like, I don't remember what Roger Ebert liked or didn't like. <laughs> I don't do that. There's, there's not some conscious, and I've never seen any of these movies. Like most of these movies that you guys pick, I've never seen them. So this is the first time I'm watching them. Yeah, it's because every time we do a show, I like to see what Roger Ebert wrote or spoke about on his, on his, on his. Uh... On this, what the hell's the name of the show again? At the movies. At the movies, right? Movie. So I, I wanted yeah. to know what he thought of it. So, anyways, the point is, That's I watched funny. New Jack City, and I was like, "This movie does not age well." Like, I don't see us actually being able to produce a podcast and being positive for forty-five minutes on that movie. Okay. So then I watched White Man Can't Jump, and I was like, "You know what? I kind of want to do this." Yeah, that, that's a movie I do really like quite a bit. <laughs> Love that movie. So, anyways, so then I was like, I gotta go to my third Wesley Snipes film that I remember my friends and I used to watch back in the days after school, that was King of New York. Okay. Wesley Snipes has a lot of, like, I don't know, I just watched Demolition Man the other night, which the first half of is actually still holds up pretty well. I, Wesley Snipes is great, man. Man, the crazy thing about Wesley Snipes back in the day, like, this is why I was, like, a huge fan of him. So, like, I'm just going to bring up his, uh, his Internet Movie Database, like, credentials here. Yeah, he's got a lot of good stuff on there. I like the, the first two Blade movies quite a bit, too. They were way better than I thought they would be. At around this time, like early 90s. So he did King of New York and Mo Better Blues in 90. In 91, he did New Jack City and Jungle Fever. And in 92, he did White Man Can't Jump and Passenger 57. So three years back to back, two movies per year, six movies in total. Plus he was Willie Mays in Major League. Right. And that was in 1989. Yeah. 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 That was a big movie. Everybody quoted like. He, he was a popular, popular character in my elementary school. But but it's it's crazy because Christopher Walken is the main character of this movie. And yes. I do not know if he was ever a main character in a movie after King of New York, whereas all of the supporting cast became main major players and the and the lead of whatever projects they took on afterwards, be it a TV show or a movie. I'm trying to think of Chris. What other movies is Christopher Walken even a lead in? I was trying to think of that too. He doesn't really play a lead very often. I know he was like he he plays the bad guy, Suicide Kings. He was you know the mafia boss in that, and that was kind of a lead, but that was more an ensemble thing. Um, I I don't know. I can't really think of too many movies. There was one where he was the devil. I cannot remember what it was called. Um, I, I did watch New Rose Hotel with it with what with Walken and uh, Asia Argento, and I just had a really, really hard time with that one. Couldn't find the vibe. Um, but this one, I, I mean, I, I think there's a few things going on for it that are that separate it from other sort of I guess you'd call them urban crime films of the same period. Um, one of them is that uh, there's this uh, there's the dreamlike aspect that Ricky mentioned where none of it 
nothing none of what's none of what's happening seems to be anchored in reality um this this uh Watkins character seems to be like um it's funny that this isn't um Abel Ferrara's vampire movie because it absolutely feels like he feels like a vampire uh exiting a tomb when he when he leaves prison and he's any he, and Walken seems to feel like he's completely above everything like he is not only the king of new york but the master of reality um and uh, of course he finds out that's not the case gradually over the course of the movie um but that that aspect i really like also there's just this um i, I noticed that the term neo-noir is used um in the wikipedia entry we might quibble with with that distinction but it does have the um black moral universe or like moral rot or void or whatever um that you do need in a good noir and uh, i think the movie's innovation if it has one is that it locates that moral rot at the center of um the drug war specifically and something i find really interesting about the movie is that it's not until very near the end um when Watkins' character frank white kind of finally explains why he killed certain people and sort of what his view of criminality is. And that's when you find out that he thinks he has a sort of moral compass, which of course is completely broken uh, and not real. But, uh, but there is something about the emptiness of the drug war that uh, completely feels true to life and kind of makes you want to go, well, he has a little bit of a point there. I agree. Regarding what I said earlier about it being sort of like dreamlike, a fever dream, like a fantasy, you're not far off from mentioning the whole vampire vibe because i mean there is a specific sequence in a movie in which one of the drug uh kingpins is watching nosferatu Mm -hmm. and he later is hung upside down like the character nosferatu when they kill him and assassinate him but i thought the exact same thing too i thought frank white is like a vampire and a lot of the criminals in this movie are portrayed like vampires where they even party in this dingy, broken down apartment complex, which looks like a vampire lair straight out of like a Andorra cracked in. Same difference. It, like even the lighting, like the blue lighting. The funny thing is he wanted to make a movie like this after watching The Terminator, which is weird because I think that's why, for example, there's the car chase and the movie is soaked in like neon blue, especially towards the especially in the beginning and at the end of the movie. Uh, somehow he wanted to make Terminator and he ended up making King of New York. It's really strange. And then there's this whole like vampire esque like quality to it. And when it comes to the moral compass and Christopher Walken's character and how he sees himself and the drug wars, what I find interesting about this film, this is what I was saying earlier on is first of all, everybody at the end, at the end, at, at the end of the movie dies, like every single major character, good or bad, they all die. Supporting players, you know, the leads, everyone from Christopher Walken to Caruso to Fishburne to Argo to Snipes to you name it. They all die. Even Janet Julian dies. Steve Buscemi might survive. Did he does he does he die? You you never see him past the early scenes, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure a test tube's dead. But but the point is the cops are the ones that actually mess everything up for Christopher Walken in a sense where Christopher Walken, you're right. Like he thinks he's eliminating all of these uh, these crime bosses because he doesn't like the way they run business and the way they exploit the the people in the city, the citizens, right? 
that doesn't mean that what he's doing is right, but in his head, he thinks he's the better man and he's going to be able to run New York city in a way where it's going to be better for everyone. But it's the cops, the cops who actually do like, basically at the end of the movie, they raid his, 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 whatever you call it, his apartment complex where they're having that party. And they're the ones that kind of like mess everything up. But like the cops are kind of like they're not corrupt, but they have to go against the law and break the law. They are completely corrupt, just for the record. Okay, okay, so they're corrupt, <laughs> but they have to actually break the law to the point where they raid his complex and try to assassinate him and every single one of the people working for him. And that's what I find so fascinating about the film because, again, 1990. I mean, I saw this movie roughly 1993, 94 for the first time, and I was kind of taken back by how the cops in this movie are so corrupt and they are actually going around murdering people. And this is before David Caruso was in, um, NYPD uh, Blue. and thank you. Exactly. <laughs> it was before it became that popular and was in that TV series. It's before Wesley Snipes was blade. It's before Larry Frischborn was in a movie like, um, like the matrix. So there's, I find this movie like incredibly fascinating for so many reasons. So regardless if at the end of the day you walk away and you don't enjoy the movie like we do, I do think it's one of those movies that I would recommend that anybody just watch just based on its importance in cinematic history. Like how it launched a lot of the, the careers of like not just the director, but the, the actors and the writer. And this is like his his um, I think it's his most successful movie. It's 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 hands down the biggest budget he ever had to make a movie. And it transitioned him from making B movies with a limited budget. We're talking about shoestring budget B movies to making a movie where he had five million dollars, this incredible cast, and he was able to film wherever the hell he wanted to film in New York City because he had a gangster backing him up. Like an actual real life gangster. <laughs> Wait, one question I wanted to ask you guys about, because you, you were talking about some of the plot details there. I think this is a very, like I told uh, Rick earlier, this is a very thin script. Uh, it's very skeletal. There, It does not I would really call it lean. I would call it lean, Patrick. <laughs> I would even go further than that. I, I think there's almost no meat on the bones of this thing. Um, so it leaves a lot open to interpretation. You were talking about the corrupt cops. It's never explicitly stated that these cops are corrupt anyway until you're shown that they take vigilantism, until they start to to, to want to kill kill these guys instead of turning them well, in because I they're, mean, they're, I, they're frustrated with the process of the law, right? I mean, like, I think as soon as you're conspiring to commit murder, that makes you a corrupt cop. <laughs> absolutely. It absolutely does. But up until that point, they're they're not. I think you br you can bring – or at least they're, it's, they're never shown to be – corrupt in any other way right other than their frustration with how the law works and how what they consider to be criminals are are going free all the time right because they don't make that decision until lawrence fishburne's character is bailed out of jail like they say five minutes after he's been arrested for murder okay i gotta jump in really quick to answer that so yes and no because the first time we're introduced to the cops they're in plain clothes they're not wearing like a badge or there's no badge visible they appear out of nowhere they look like a group of thugs they attack frank they throw him in the back of the car they bring him to the middle of nowhere under like whatever under a bridge and they harass him and they open up a trunk of their car and in the trunk of their car is the gangster who shot and assassinated in the opening sequence of the film in the phone booth 
So like right away, like if you're not like I mean, cops don't do that. They don't put no. dead bodies in a trunk of their car. <laughs> in, <laughs> like... in movies, they do though, and and that was <laughs> that Frank did kill that guy. So it's really hard. It's hard to think like, oh, these cops are bad guys. Well, like, hold yeah, on. Frank, Frank did have something to do with killing that guy, and Frank obviously went to jail for for things that these cops are clearly familiar with, right? But but I think I think the thing is is that Ferrara sets up expectations for all of the characters and the relationships between these characters in the movie and he pulls the rug from under us. He even does it with Larry Fishburne's character and that whole gang, that whole crew when they first meet Christopher uh Christopher Watkins Frank White because when they first meet it looks like it's going to be a hostile uh meetup, right? It looks like 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 we don't realize that they're actually actual friends. So I don't know, like the first time I saw the cops, I was like, these cops are up to no good. They're not exactly like good cops. And they're going to do what they have to do. Even if it means breaking the law in order to get this guy behind bars. Well, Bishop was a very, I, th- I felt, I thought he was a very honorable cop. Bishop's um, the only one though. But he he was also there in that original scene, that first scene. I, I just think that that's cops. That's general, like New York city cop stuff from that's a leftover from the eighties. New York was crime ridden. That's the death wish mentality. It's the like we got to be tough on the criminals kind of thing. We got to rough them up. Well, it's all. Um, uh, I don't know how pre I'm, anything. That America kind of wanted that kind of stuff back during the eighties quite a bit, and uh, I think that was just sort of holdover script wise. My my whole point in bringing that the cops up though wasn't to debate whether they're corrupt or not, but it was more to say like this. This is a kind of movie where the script is so skeletal. You bring to it a lot of the characterization. They they do not supply characterization very much in here. I would say that the characters are about as wispy thin as you can get. Like they're just bare bones cliches for a lot of the uh, for a lot of it. At least that's the way I see it. I think you need to. That's the way they're written on page. I think you bring the the, the depth to these characters and all the little eccentricities and all the little uh, you know facets to them that you want to. And I'm guessing, like you guys, kind of read more into this than than I do. I think that the the direction and the visuals and what's not being said a lot of times speaks volumes for the characters. I mean, like there's one sequence in which Frank White is seen standing by a window, and we see the reflection of the city, and we see his reflection. There's a lot of like shots where we see reflections of Frank White and the way he sees the city. There's reflections of the city when the camera just captures like a puddle in the middle of like the road to whatever. There's just reflections everywhere. But the point is like, I think that there is plenty of times where it pretty much like says that like, you know, these people are all corrupt. There's no black and white. There's a lot of gray. And that speaks to like the cops, for example. My point was this, that I felt like I knew none of these people. And by the end, the only person's name I actually knew was Frank. I literally knew no other character's name. And I just watched the entire movie. And at the very end of the movie, I couldn't tell you a single character's name other than Frank. I didn't feel like I knew anybody in this. So all of their sort of quiet, contemplative moments were complete. Like Christopher Watkins staring off through a window was, to me, a blank stare that was empty, full of nothing. Just like he, you know, I know, I mean, isn't I know it he great? Said he, he had that line where he, you know, he felt like he was empty of emotion and, and had no remorse or anything like that. But for me, it made it made no emotional impact for me, and I got no vibes from it because I could not connect to anybody. But that's how I watch a movie. That's not a criticism of the movie. That's just how I approach this movie. I'm just sort of fascinated by by you. You guys clearly find more in this movie than I do. Like to me, this whole entire movie is basically saying that. There's like this huge problem here when it comes to criminal justice. It has a lot to do with the court system, a lot to 
do with the judges, a lot to do with the lawyers, a lot to do with the actual criminals, and a lot to do with the police force. And it's not an easy fix, and everyone's to blame for how the city's falling apart. And when we have the sequence in which he's driving in the limo and he comes out of prison, and they're driving through New York City, and they're driving through the slums, and he sees how the neighborhood is just falling apart, and there's drug dealers and prostitutes, and it's just... It, it looks like a nightmare. It looks like it's straight out of a horror film. Like the thing about him is that he's not happy about it. So I'm not, I don't think he's like a Robin Hood character. A lot of people, I've read a lot of reviews where they always use the term Robin Hood because we no, never it, actually see him give money to anyone throughout the whole entire film. I think he's a drug business, dealer too. <laughs> he's a businessman. And he says it in the movie and he says it at the end when he has the, conf- the confrontation with uh, Argo in his apartment. He says, I'm a businessman. The way I look at it is Frank White wants the city to thrive. He doesn't want the city to fall apart because he's the king of New York. Why would you want your city that you are the king of to fall apart? He has a different view of how to do business opposed to the other drug kingpins. He wants the city to succeed. He doesn't want it to fall apart because that's better for business for him. So yeah, he's going to invest money into places like a hospital. But it's because at the end of the day, he knows that it's going to bring more money into his pockets and it's going to be a better place for him to live. There's plenty of criminals and businessmen like that in the world. And I also, by the way, I also find it funny that the whole entire film is shot, not the whole entire film, but he does business in Donald Trump's plaza. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The entire film. (laughs) Anyhow... Uh, that's the way I look at Frank White. He's a businessman. I mean, he still is like buying up drugs and he plans to distribute them all. Like this is cocaine, I'm assuming. For sure. Um, so I, I, I have a hard time seeing it. It's hilarious to me that there are people out there that refer to him as a Robin Hood. That's hilarious. But that, that's why I disagree. But, he's not a Robin Hood. He's a businessman. Yeah. But the way he chooses to do business is that he's going to sell drugs and he's still a gangster and he's still a criminal. But he wants to conduct business in a way where he's not destroying his whole entire city at the same time. The simplest way to explain the moral universe of this movie is I think it's more or less what you said, Ricky. Everyone is doing the things that they think need to be done to make New York livable. Um, But the baseline for livable, A, is all fucked up. And B, the the entire legal system and the framework of uh, we need to uh, prosecute not only people dealing drugs, but people doing them uh, and anything to do with them. Um, that whole you know, setup is obviously uh, untenable. So you have people enfor- people enforcing a situation that is uh, you know already built on, uh, let's say, rickety or possibly even poisoned foundations, and then you have the parasites like Frank trying to, I, I guess, um, sort of navigating the skim or the scum or the 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 gray zone that 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 pops up. When the people who are responsible for, you know, policing your life and telling you uh, what's good and what's bad and coercing you into those positions uh, can't be trusted either and uh, have incentives that uh, are wrong and fucked up. Um, he explains all of that at the end of the movie. Yes, when he, completely. When he breaks into the apartment of of um, what's his name again? Bishop. Um, Victor. Bishop, right. Because yeah. he starts explaining how Artie Clay had left $13 million for an estate or something. And he starts talking about how Larry Wong was basically charging people $800 a month for an apartment, but they had to share a toilet with everyone else on the same floor. And he starts talking about Tito. That's and Toronto, by the way. 
Yeah, exactly. So Tito would actually have 13-year-old prostitutes and so on and so forth. And so he explains all of that at the end of the film. But that's why even with a character like Jennifer, like, yeah, we don't know much about her, but I still find her character fascinating, like her performance. There's something magnetic and, and electric about the performances in this film. But but he says it. He's like, look, I've been in jail for 22 years. Nothing's changed. It's only gotten worse. It's not me. Like, don't be pointing the finger at me and I'm the only person to blame. Yeah, he's not. And I, and I get like, but Bishop's job is to arrest people, right? So this is basically what you have here is you got two groups that are delusional and they both want control. They both think that they can control yes. the world in their way. And Bishop, I see, is somebody who falls. He's the guy that I think we're supposed to connect to as an audience. Like he falls somewhere in between. He doesn't believe in the absolute control. He's kind of just going with the flow on a lot of Bishop, this. Bishop is the uh, Tommy Lee Jones and No Country for Old Men type role. Yeah, who's just he's seen it all and he's not willing to go all the way and he's just hoping to weather the storm, which uh, he does not. No, he does not. But you're, yeah, he's kind of that that sort of middle ground between the two active forces. He's the passive force. Um, yeah, so I, I don't see Frank as any sort of character to root for. I don't really see him as a villain to root against completely. I mean, just in the same way that the cops are not, I don't see them as villains and I don't see them as heroes either. So you're right. It does have that sort of morally corrupt there in that sense. I guess you could say it's got a noir feel to it. Um, it's just that I don't really know any of the people and I, like you, you bring up that lawyer. I, I, I don't find her fascinating cause I don't really, I don't have anything that I can sort of latch onto as to who she really is. And that's a, that's a problem that I blame on the script. The actors actually do a really good job. I think trying to give character to these penciled in kind of. Can, uh, <laughs> can, we, can we just quickly note how weird it is that like throughout the nineties and I guess the late eighties, David Caruso was this reliable character actor um, who I think often gives really entertaining performances. He gives one here. Uh, I'm thinking of movies like Session 9, too, where he shows up and just kind of bugs out. Uh, and then in the early 2000s, he became literally the most recognizable actor in the world for several years, thanks to CSI Miami. In the world. Isn't that wild? It's the way he removed his sunglasses. His way of delivering a little... <laughs> I don't... Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand, honestly, how that guy became a movie star. Or or any... Or I guess he never was really I mean, star, I think it was mostly dumb luck. TV star, yeah. Yeah. He's a good... You're right. He's a good character actor. And he does deliver a good performance here. I'm trying to think of other movies that I've seen him be a young hothead in. Um, there were quite a few. Oh, there were and loads in this period, yeah. He, he's good at doing that. And... All the actors, like I say, Lawrence Fishburne probably turns in the most eccentric performance. Um, Christopher Walken's is very Christopher Walken-ish. It's like, it's what you think the stereotype of a Christopher Walken performance would be. He even not, dances a lot. He even dances, yep. <laughs> but this, this is before this is before True Romance and Pulp Fiction, yes. and even before yeah. SNL. Like, I don't think he was on SNL yet. So, like, now, like, the Christopher Walken performance, it's it's what you think of him in movies like Suicide Kings and, and Pulp Fiction, but this was before and it's, it's still different. I, I just love, love, love his entire performance throughout this whole entire film. Even at the end when he says no words and he's sitting in the cab right before he dies, I think his performance is incredible. He just, he doesn't have to say anything like it's his body language. Uh, you, you've also just highlighted uh, something about the ending that I really like. Uh, it comes about, a few minutes after my favorite scene in the movie, which we'll talk about later, 
but I love that, you know, obviously Frank can't get out of this situation um, considering everything he's done, not even in the dreamlike moral universe of this movie. Uh, but I like that the, there's all this mounting dread that we're headed for some kind of huge like Western style standoff in amid like on a on a on a car log street in New York. And then he just kind of slips away slowly instead, uh, which I thought was I mean, obviously, it's a way to make your ending easier to film, but also um, I just I, I love I just love how long that takes and how uh, how weirdly uneventful it is. I completely disagree. I, I think what makes the ending brilliant is the fact that he ends up in the middle of Times Square and he's sitting there and he sees all the neon lights and a big advertising signs and how crowded the streets are and like how it's become so commercial. And he realizes that in the 22 years he's been in prison, New York has changed mm. and the crime world has changed and the, the businessmen are taking over and everything's changing in New York City. And when he's sitting there and he's, dying i think that's when he really sees the city for what it is like now 22 years later from after he's released from prison for the majority of the film he's he's he sticks at the locations of which he 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 knows and he's surrounded by the people that he knows and i feel like that's when he finally gets out of his comfort zone and it's a little too late at that point in time so clearly he dies like i said this before this is the movie tarantino wanted to make that he never got around making to the point where he took all of these characters and these actors and put put them in his movies later on. And I feel like this was a big, huge influence on his movie making moving forward. I mean, he made Reservoir Dogs, I think two years or a year after this movie got released. Can I just mention uh, every time that I end up in Times Square, I also crave death. So very, <laughs> very relatable. You know, there's a sequence with, in which he goes to, I don't know if it's Broadway, but he's watching like a theater piece, like a play being performed right yeah the guy right the guy shoots the cop yeah yeah well so so like in that sequence if i'm not mistaken it's a bunch of prisoners who take revenge on our prison guard yeah yeah yeah, that's what it is because i found that that sequence especially because it's bathed in like the neon blues and like he's got the blue filters on the camera and the lighting and all that i felt that it resembled the shootout that we get at the end of the film which then leads into the Mm. big car chase sequence so what he sees played out in front of him in this Broadway play later actually comes to life later in the movie. And and also, just really quick, the song that they play in that Broadway play, it sounds like it's sampling March of the Winkies from Wizard of Oz, which is also the same beat that LL Cool J later sampled for the song on the type of guy. Oh, damn. Did you um, that? The, some good wizard wizard of oz and ll cool j knowledge you um you you inadvertently brought up something that uh i wanted to talk about which is in those scenes where he goes to the theater and he goes to a fancy party and he tries to sort of mingle with the socialites and the and the decision makers and the politicians we get a few of those scenes and i really like that stuff because i think what it's illustrating is like if he were willing to to change a little bit or evolve or like sort of sand off his rougher edges, I think what the movie's telling you is he could absolutely uh blend in if he just if he knew how to how to change just a little bit. He's got money, he's got pull, he's got, you know, moves he can make. Uh absolutely he could join with these people. But as you see in the in the theater sequence, he just he's not comfortable 
Like he's just he's not comfortable uh, with, I guess, uh, with, with with trying to like mimic a normal life or trying to mimic like normal life for this for this social strata that he's supposedly in based on his wealth level or based on his uh, based on his amount of, of sway that he can have over reality. Um, and I, I, I really like that aspect. Like it's it's it keeps saying, you know, there is a way out for you, but you're not willing to take it. And uh, and yeah, See, I, I saw that. I saw that scene completely different. It made it made me think that they're equating politicians and gangsters. It's just that well, one, also that, that yes, it does its thuggery a little bit differently, and he doesn't understand. I think why or he can't he make can't make that adjustment where he doesn't just do things, doesn't just take things when he wants them, kill people when he needs to, uh, whereas they have to you know slither and slip and slide and 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 go back you know use a lot of back channels yeah there's a level of um sophistication and evasion and elision to the things that they do and the way that they work that he just doesn't maybe he understands it but he doesn't have the patience for it right yeah that's kind of what i got out of that Um, but when it comes to abel ferrera i will say this so i'm not a fan of the driller killer i don't know why people say it i mean look the movie put him in the spotlight it made it it made him like who he is today okay great but the movie sucks i'm sorry nine (laughs) lies of a wet pussy is basically like a porn film let's be real like like it's not a good movie it's fucking like it's it's a shitty ass like porn uh, in which by the way he actually performs because his actor like dropped out or something so he decided to just you know, go and have sex on camera, the director, Abel Ferreira. Uh, Fear City is great. If you haven't seen Fear City, I highly recommend it. China Girl is great. King of New York is great. Bad Lieutenant is great, although, you know, be warned. It's, it's uh, a little rough. Miss 45? Miss 45 is, you know why Miss 45 is great? So here's, here's, glad you brought it up, Simon. So I was getting there. So just before I get to Miss 45, <laughs> the addiction I really liked, um, and the rest are hit and miss. But, but Miss 45. So the thing I do like about, about Mr. Abel Ferreira is I love his female characters. I love the women in his movies. And and that starts with a movie like Miss 45. Like I find that his 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 women are so I don't know, magnetic, electric, powerful, like just interesting, interesting characters. And unlike the characters you see in movies from different directors. Like there's just something about his movies. I just, or his earlier films. And again, I think it's when he was working with the, um, his, his screenplay writer there, Nicholas St. John, like as soon as Nicholas St. John and him stopped working, like I haven't seen all of his movies since, but like, they're just not the same. Of course, he's also gotten older. So maybe it's because he's not on crack anymore yeah. doing drugs on I, set. I will say, um, I don't want to, I don't want to disparage any of his more recent work. None of which I've seen. I know that like Welcome to New York and Pasolini, uh, some other of his recent, like much more recent movies do have their fans. Uh, so I, I am curious to see those and not dismiss them. Uh, but I will say that uh, I know people who gen- who genuinely love the hell out of uh out of new rose hotel so i'm gonna have to assume that some of them will be not for me well you should watch our xmas because it's so much like king of new york and i still need to see siberia from what i hear siberia is his most divisive amongst his loyal fan base what is it about his style you think that gains him such a devoted fan base i was trying to figure that out as i was watching king of new york last night because i didn't notice anything that was particularly distinguishable but 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 like i said i I think it's the same reason why i found myself fascinated with tarantino's early work because it's the way he directs his actors and performance he gets out of his actors and the line delivery well dialogue tarantino has a massive uh (laughs) 
like uh, advantage over Abel Ferrara movies just in the dialogue. Well, he's a way better scriptwriter than Nicholas St. John for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's but like you close. can't you can't argue that this movie wasn't a major influence on Tarantino's writing moving forward. It was. I mean, all of Abel Ferrara's films like heavily inspired Tarantino, but I I, I think that there's something about his movies that feel authentic, uh, but yet at the same time fantasy like. He does shoot in New York City on location. I like the cinematography. I like the the look of the film, the filters he uses, the soundtrack that he uses. Like when we go going back to Schooly D really quick, like Schooly D to me is like Slick Rick. He tells these stories in his songs, right? And the and it, it feels like they're not polished. His mu- music's not polished. It feels like he recorded all of his music in his closet when he's living in his mom's basement type thing. But there's something so raw and 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 original and real about it. But at the same time, it's not real because he was never really a gangster. Like, I don't know. I find this movie fascinating. All right. Well, with that, <laughs> Simon, unless you have something to add. Uh, no, I mean, I would just say it's one of those times. It's just like when we were talking about Cell Block 99, you know, mm-hmm. uh, either either you you clue it. Either like your brain registers that like your your lizard brain or whatever vibrates at the same uh, at the same frequency as the director and everyone else, uh, or it doesn't. And uh, this is just one of those times. And Farrar is one of those dudes. Yeah. And before we cut the break, I just got to quickly mention that there are sequences in this film in which it feels like John Woo or Ringo Lamb walked on the set and became the director. Like I'm I'm specifically thinking of the car chase sequence at yeah. the end the raid and also the raid on Chinatown because that whole entire sequence, it looks feels it's directed and it's shot and the lighting, the camera angles and the camera shots. It looks like a scene from a Hong Kong film in the early nineties, like a Ringo Lam movie or a John Woo film. And we didn't see that kind of stuff in American cinema back then. This is before John wick. This is, you know, this is like, this movie was made in 1989. So there's just a lot going. I think the thing is, Patrick, before we cut the break, is this the first time you watched a movie? Yeah, yeah, it okay. is. But yeah. but also, I mean, keep in mind, I can compartmentalize and I would have, you know, I, good filmmaking is good filmmaking. To me, I'm, I'm not sure I would have ever connected with this. Like the things that you see in it, like the car chase, for instance, I, I, I barely remember there being a car chase. Uh, I, I honestly, this is one of those movies that I'll probably forget most of it. I, I, I'm glad we're talking about it today because I watched it last night because I'll probably forget everything about it in in, in a matter of days. I, I, there's nothing, it, there was nothing terrible. I didn't have a torturous time watching. It wasn't bad. I just saw a bland cop gangster movie. That's what I watched. And that's why I, I don't want to like I don't want to get into you know I don't want to talk about it too much about my my stuff on this be, because it doesn't really it's not very productive but that's what I saw so it's fascinating for me to to hear you guys it's always frustrating for me when I can't connect to something that I know the the rest of the film world does connect to. Well, I mean, and I would I, say I, wanna... I don't think the rest of the film world connects to anything. Uh, I think but there's, a lot there's... of people that admire Abel Ferrar movies, and I've heard about him all the time. And I, I've they do. seen some I mean, of his other movies. And... I I will say I just as often encounter like cranky cinephiles who are just who just who don't get his thing at all. So I definitely it's it's not universal or even I would say no. Uh, no, super popular. Not. It's he's but he's a, still a very niche filmmaker. I want to understand. I want to try to understand every filmmaker that's admired, and you know, some of them you're just never going to get. And I think that his is just one of those. I, 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 
I would want to understand. I like listening to people talk about it. I don't, but I can't say that I, I saw the same movies. <laughs> for, for, for every person that likes an Abel Ferrer film, there's like a thousand that hate his films. This movie got booed at the New York Film Festival, not the Cannes Film Festival, the New York Film Festival. They got booed off stage. I don't understand that either, though. I don't understand how this movie inspires either love or hate. I guess that's my point. I think you need to listen to some Notorious B.I.G. and maybe you'll find a liking and love for the film. I mean, as I was watching, I was like, okay, he's a competent filmmaker. That I, I don't see how you could boo this, this movie. But all right, maybe we should take a break. We'll get back. Maybe we'll get into a couple of deeper. I wanna, I wanna hear like the the scene stuff when we get into our five questions here. When we sort of break down some scenes, um, let's take a quick break. Here's another clip from King in New York. Up, up, up. They took permanent vacation in hell, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, I must have been away too long because my feelings are dead. <laughs> I, I feel no remorse. Yo. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard being in jail makes you feel like that, man. I got a present for you. Check it out. They were King Tito's. But he don't need them where he is now. <laughs> yeah, I thought maybe you would uh, donate them to a clothing drive or something. You know what I'm <laughs> <laughs> it's right. Having a good time, huh, Jim? Hey, man, I've been waiting years for this. <laughs> Emilio Zappa sends his regards. Ah! Ah! Yeah! You know how I love money. <laughs> well, help yourself. <laughs> Is the meeting set with Delicio? Downtown. You need to let me bust a cap in that moon-headed motherfucker's ass, boy. Word! He's yeah. a fucking glitter boy. He's looking to get sprayed, laid, played, and slayed. How? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was another clip from King of New York. We have reached the point of the podcast where we ask our five questions. This is going to be a tough one for me. I've said that a few times, I think, with the movies that you guys have chosen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sounds like a you problem, not a me problem. I know. I'm beginning to think it might be. Uh, we're gonna. We always like to say positive to start out. So, right off the bat, we're gonna go with uh, Simon. What is your favorite scene from King of New York? Uh, please you know, don't pick the please don't pick the only one that I have as an option. <laughs> I hope it's not um, very near the end. Possibly the most offhand shotgun blast of in movie history. Like what Watkins dangling this thing like like it's a like it's something much lighter than a shotgun. I don't know what I can tell you that doesn't have. And he just he kind of just like faily for like half a second. Uh, leans it out of the window and blows away Frank uh, David Caruso at the funeral for his for his fucking colleague <laughs> in broad daylight. Like the only scene in this movie that takes place during the day, practically. Um, it it's it makes no sense. I mean, it, or rather, it's something. It's obviously 
of all the stuff that happens in this movie that would never happen in real life, this uh, takes the cake as the most ridiculous. But something about how fast it happens and uh, just the glee with which this is something important to note about uh, Ferrara, at least in this movie. Uh, he is not one of those guys lecturing you about screen violence. Abel Ferrara thinks, based on this movie at least, thinks screen violence is cool and funny, which is the correct <laughs> pos- position to have, by the way. Uh, and he, th- this scene demonstrates it more than anywhere. Just like Caruso's brains and blood just splattering everywhere. Uh, it's it's so good. And a bunch of a bunch of cops running from the funeral. Yeah, he'd never get away with that, but it's it was a cool. It comes out of nowhere, and it, like you said, it happens so fast you barely have time to process it before they've already moved on. Can I can I read the best quote from Abel Ferreira? By the way, this guy is crazy. Everyone I know who's actually met him has a crazy story about him. Every story I've ever heard about him is a crazy story. But anyways, this is his best quote. So he's like. King of New York is so lovely. He uses the word lovely. We only murder every motherfucker in that movie because when I made that film, that's how I felt. I love it when they say, can you make King of New York too? And I say, well, every other person in the movie is dead. And he goes off to talk about his other film. He's like, the only one film that tops that is the last movie I made where I kill everyone on the planet. In 444, we kill every single human being. And not only that, but I didn't even realize until after making a movie, we destroy every single work of art. <laughs> it's just like, it's like this crazy quote. And he, he starts talking about Tarantino and how all of Tarantino's movies are dead. And then he ends, he's like, he says that um, he's a growing artist. And that's like that movie, 444, proves that he's grown as a filmmaker because he went from killing the main characters to just killing everyone on the planet. That is how you grow as an artist. <laughs> yeah. Murder. Your, your, your worth as an artist is, is measured in bodies for sure. <laughs> uh, that is not the scene I was going to pick though. Simon. Oh, good. Um, I was going to pick the subway showdown between Bishop and Frank and oh. the, the weird hostage situation that also seems to come out of nowhere and feels completely out of place. Don't you think but, that they actually took that woman hostage? She does not look like an actor. Yeah, no, she's no, so she great. And she doesn't act like an actress either. She she just seems completely taken aback by this whole thing, but not sure how to react to it. But I think that's how someone would react. Yeah. I, it's very possible, right? And Walken's interplay with her is hilarious. It's almost like he's <laughs> he is treating somebody, he's talking to this to this woman like she has nothing to do with any of this, which is exactly what the case is. Um, the way he sort of referenced her. I don't know. I like that little showdown. To me, that's the best character moment in the entire movie. You get a little, a sense of both of these guys. Yeah. I, I, I like his bit about like, you know, uh, oh, do you have a family? Uh, like, oh, that's nice. Like I would just understand it's, it's not personal, but I wouldn't hesitate to blow your brains all over the subway. But it, but remember, it's not personal. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I don't want to hurt you. I, I, I like that, that moment. It's an interesting that to me was an interesting moment, interesting exchange between characters that didn't feel like it was something I'd seen before. So that was a, that was a hostage situation, which was unlike any other. That was unique. I like that. Uh, Rick, what about you? Man, I'm so disappointed none of you picked the raid because I can't pick the raid. So I got to pick my favorite scene, which I think is the best scene. It's when Jimmy Jump meets Frank White for the first time since Frank White has been released from prison. 
in walks Larry Fishburne's character. He's got that swagger to him. Like the guy looks like he's actually on Coke or something. Like I wouldn't be surprised if he was taking drugs while making a movie. And he's got his like goons behind him, including uh, Steve Buscemi, whose nickname is Test Tube, which I find funny. But just the way he approaches Frank White, and again, you feel like this is going to be a hostile situation. Like they're going to argue or, you know what I mean? But no, it turns out they're actually best friends. And he's like, what's in the cup? And then, you know, he answers and Christopher Walken delivers that incredible line about remorse and being away for too long. So he has no more feelings. And then he does his little dance and then they like hug and he kisses him. I just, I love that sequence. And, and also that scene opens with the scene of Christopher Walken looking out the window at the city, we see the reflection of the city. So it just, it says so much about his character and his relationship to these guys, because like, let's face it, Frank White is white, but everyone that runs with Frank White is not white. And I don't know. I love that scene. And Christopher Walken's like his, his performance in that scene is, I don't even know how, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's out of this world. Like his eyes, his body movements, his facial expressions. It's also weird to see Lawrence Fishburne in this role. He looks like he's part of the rap group, Ron DMC in terms of like the way he's dressed and, and Steve Buscemi. He just, it's just, it's weird to see these guys so young and, and dressed the way they're dressed and playing these, these gangsters. I don't know. I, I love this scene. Uh, my my second choice, if I had to, would have been the scene where Lawrence Fishburne's character. What is his name again? J- uh, Jimmy Jump. Jimmy Jump. Okay, yeah. Did they ever say that in the movie? Because <laughs> I don't remember hearing it. But uh, where he gets arrested at the uh, when he's ordering food, and yes, the, the kids that want to play the arcade. Scene. I like that scene. That was my favorite scene with him. Because also, I, what I love about that scene is that it it underscores like. Because, you know, it, it's kind of hard to not be a little bit in love with Lawrence Fishburne at this time in his, you know, in his career as an actor, because he's just so, you know, he's good looking and he's charismatic as hell. And he's just got so much energy, which he's using all over this. But then this scene is here to really underline, like, this guy's a prick. He's really, mm-hmm. he's really a prick. <laughs> he's not, I mean, he's not just a someone who does bad things, but he's anyone who, who mistreats like, like, you know, minimum wage slaves uh definitely definitely a prick that scene made me so hungry i'm telling you (laughs) that scene made me glad i never worked at a fast food restaurant um all right so if there was one thing you could change about this film simon what would it be i don't know i feel like i feel like to know what to what to change i would need to be able for you know like i feel like if i try to change anything from the outside it's going to turn it into something that it's not and maybe that movie would be better, but it wouldn't be King of New York. So I'm going to say I wouldn't change anything. Hmm. hmm. Cop out. <laughs> oh, are you, t- are you telling me that's a cop out? Yeah, that's a cop out. That's fair. I'll cop to that. You know, the funny thing is, Simon, I, my answer is going to be the exact same thing. I don't have a thing to change. Like, I don't have the question supposed to be if there was only one thing that you could change about this movie, what would it be? And I can't point to any one thing that I think is. I mean, I'd rewrite the whole script, but that's not a thing that you can <laughs> that's not a thing that you can do. So I don't feel like there's one element to me that stands out or that there's not one thing that really bugs me. So I gotta pass the buck too. Rick, you know this movie inside and out. If there was one thing, is there one thing you would change and what would that be? 
Yeah, so Abel Ferrara is not very good at directing action. I do like the raid and I do love the car chase sequence, but the problem with him is he doesn't understand how people shoot guns and fire guns. <laughs> <laughs> that which is which is very evident from the shotgun blast that I mentioned. Exactly. I think someone should have sat down with him and explained how people hold guns, shoot guns, fire guns, and also the editing when you actually hear the sound effect of the gun being fired, it doesn't always match the actual visual. So <laughs> it's a combination of the editing of the sound effect and just how people fire guns. There's, there's times where Christopher Walken fires, I think like eight rounds into Artie, the old Italian like gangster dude. There's yeah. no spark coming out of the gun. The way he holds the gun, if you actually fired a gun, holding the gun the way he holds the gun, he would like break his wrist. And he runs out of bullets. Like it's just about the way they shoot the guns. And there's a lot of guns in this movie, and there's a lot of bullets flying. So it would have been nice if Abel Ferrara actually understood how guns work. He gets the drugs down perfectly. He knows how how people take drugs because the guy was taking drugs while filming the movie, but he has no idea how guns work. Walken makes those like hand gestures when he shoots the Italian yeah, yeah. guy, and it's just like, oh my god, none of these guys has ever fired a yeah I, anything. I forgot to mention the most important detail about the shotgun blast which is that he's doing it one-handed yeah out, out like out of the window like it's nothing and it, it looks like he shoots about four feet above caruso's head but somehow <laughs> it blows his head off <laughs> uh, <laughs> see again this is one of those things that i could fix but it would make it a different movie that's what i want to say though do you want to change that <laughs> absolutely not absolutely not but but the weird thing is that during the raid, when they actually the cops storm into the building and they start shooting everybody, that mm. scene is actually filmed pretty good. And it's the most complex of all the scenes. Like the actual action is choreographed well. So I don't know if someone helped him. Can I just we we've we've skipped over maybe the funniest uh Abel Ferrara doesn't understand guns aspect. Which is the fact that Larry Fishburne is always packing two pistols in like one in each hand all the time, and like he's fucking Max Payne, uh, and it's it's never not funny to me. Uh, I always chalk that up to stupid, like another leftover thing from '80s movies too, where there were so many characters that did that. I guess that happens in the '90s a little bit, but The Matrix made that kind of popular too. I love this scene. Don't get me wrong, but. The opening sequence in which they assassinate the slimy, I think it was one of the Colombian drug dealers in the, inside the phone booth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they they legit shoot this guy like 32 times and then they ask him to read the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> Just so he knows who does it, right? Like, who's responsible? Uh, uh, what is the guarantee that he would be alive? No, that's fantastic. I don't think about that. Because the thing is, they, they put the screwdriver so he can't get out of the phone booth. So yeah. the idea would be you put the screwdriver, he's trapped inside, then you take the newspaper, you put it up to the glass so he understands that Frank White's out of prison, then you shoot the motherfucker. No, they did yeah, exactly. the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, you're right. <laughs> They're like, oops, we forgot to do this first. Well, let's just show him right now. He's still alive. Woo. Um, no harm, no no harm, no foul. Thugs. This is not. It's not a scene I would change, but it is one other weird slash funny thing that I want to mention. 
which is that the movie has a very pre-Rampart, and I want to, so that's like late 90s, like a pre-Rampart version of what dirty slash corrupt cops are like, where like they don't get in on drug deals. They don't like pit gangs against each other. They don't plant evidence. They just like put, they put masks on and mount up and go do mass murder, (laughs) 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 which is just very funny to me. They're just they're vigilantes at that point. That's yeah. all that they are. Uh, they're just yeah. like they're a it's, posse. It's just a it's a very cartoon version of police corruption that I really enjoy. Oh yeah, there's no question. I, I mean, I think the portrayals of the police in this are. I mean, I, I'm not sure you ever actually see any real police work being done no, throughout the no, entire not movie. <laughs> not at all. They basically the only things that cops do in this movie is complain about how they don't get to murder people and then murder people. Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> Speaking of the cops, does anybody understand why Wesley Snipes has an Irish name? I don't know if that was supposed to be... Well, Eddie Murphy has an Irish name, too. I don't uh, I don't know. I think there's a huge difference between Murphy and Thomas Flanagan. Like, he sounds like a leprechaun. <laughs> I know, but Murphy's like the most... Common. That's like their Smith of Ireland. Do you think that maybe oh. the, they mixed up who Caruso and Fishburne were playing? Like they got each other's character, uh, Caruso and uh, Snipes, rather. Like, like David Caruso makes more sense as Thomas Flanagan. Yeah, but what is Caruso's name? Uh, Dennis Gilly. Dennis Gilly. Hmm. Mm. I I don't know if that was just supposed to be a joke because he makes a joke about the all the Irish people that are at the the wedding. Mm, yeah that's right and if that if that was supposed to be part of it i don't remember the name flanagan ever getting brought up but it probably was see another weird alley to this movie is the uh the irish <laughs> aspect people don't talk about this well if john carlo esposito if his character lance actually survived this could be a precursor to breaking bad that's true especially with the whole fast food chicken scene that's going on in the that's movie. right <laughs> Uh, all right, uh, let's move on from this. <laughs> Probably a good idea. The King of New York conspiracy theories. Um, what is our next question? Our next question is always, who is the MVP of this film? Is there an MVP, and who would it be to King of New York, Simon? Uh, I kind of... Um, so, runner-up is going to be Larry Fishburne who gives okay. i think the most fun performance in this movie and to me he gives the he gives the performance that best encapsulates the movie even better than Watkins does um i think just in terms of locating it in time and location um he just really anchors the movie uh i'm going to give it up for uh Bojan Bazelli his dp because i think the key to the lasting resonance of any movie set in late 80s or early 90s or any period New York that's not now is to capture the city and to capture the vibe. And uh, and as you mentioned, uh, Ricky, this is all on location. So I got to give it up for uh, for Bazzelli, his his regular DP. Uh, and there's a reason. Not always, but he did a better job on China Girl. He didn't work on all of his movies. He worked on China Girl and King of New York. OK, so I wouldn't call him regular. Oh, he and he did, did body snatchers. He did yeah. body snatchers. He did catch New York very well. I but mean, China does... Girl is he does a way better job in China Girl. There you go. I haven't. You know what? I haven't seen China Girl yet, so I got to fix that. I for me, I'm. Uh, it's hard to go with. 
it's hard to have an MVP when you when you you know when you feel that way. I'm gonna go with Victor Argo, I guess, because he's the character that feels the most grounded to me. I actually think it's a really good subtle performance. It's the character that I that I could connect to, um, because I think he made him the most accessible to the audience as far as everybody else is putting on a on a show. But I think that Argo actually is trying to let the audience in. Um, I'm not sure that any of the other characters, any of the other actors are trying to do that. So, yeah, I'm going to go with him. This is really hard because there's there's five people I think we need to consider. And I think you mentioned three so far. Victor Argo's Roy Bishop is the secret weapon, the secret ingredient. We got the DP. I totally agree with Simon because he brings the movie to life and New York City itself is a character in a film. And of course, we got Lawrence Fishburne, who plays Jimmy Jump. But then, of course, there's Christopher Walken, and he's the lead, and there's the director, Abel Ferreira. But but I'm going to have to pick Christopher Walken. Even though I think Larry's performance is better and more entertaining, I think Christopher Walken just makes the movie. I mean, it opens with him. It closes with him. He's a central character. I'm going to have to go with him. I thought you were going to give it to Schooly D. No, but Schooly D, um, I, I mean, just because he, he chose his music doesn't really he, no, he did anything on set. He didn't he didn't compose the music for the movie. They no. just took the music and put it in there. Right. All right. Well, does uh, does King of New York pass the Howard Hawks test? It's one scene. This movie is one scene. <laughs> so, no, it fails the test. But, you know, the... it also proves the test invalid. <laughs> well, the test is purely subjective. But, uh, I mean, I, I, Rick, what do you think? Three great scenes, no bad ones? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that there's an actual bad scene in the film. I mean, I, regardless I if you like the film or not, and you don't like the screenplay or not, or whatever, there's no bad scene. And I think the movie has at least three iconic scenes that the people who do like the movie, people who do like the director, people who do like Christopher Walken, they remember those scenes. And we've mentioned a bunch of them throughout the entire podcast. Like there are iconic moments in this film. So I would say it passes the Howard Hawks test. Yeah, I can't give it that because not because of the bad scenes, but because I don't believe that there are any great scenes in this movie. I mean, I named my favorite scenes, but none of them, none of them would qualify as great to me. There won't be anything that sticks out. Like I say, I probably won't remember much about this movie um, a week from now. Uh, other than that, we talked about it. That's the the mo- the the most I'll remember is this from this conversation. <laughs> and otherwise, I could probably watch this movie a year from now, and it, it would be uh, almost like new for me. Um. So, yeah, for me, no. Uh, all right, but obviously there are things, Rick, that you remember about it, that you're always going to remember about it. Um, and, Simon, maybe you have those uh, those moments as well. What what are some of those moments that we haven't brought up that you would remember? Lines, you know, not necessarily a scene, because we already brought that, those up, but the smaller moments. I was going to say, like, lines like i feel like there's this movie has a lot of quotable dialogue i was actually listening to this is a while back i listened to the ringer podcast they had tarantino on and they were talking about this film and they spent like 90 percent of the podcast like listening to tarantino recite the lines from the movie 
anything we have i mean we mentioned the, the the fast food joint we mentioned the opening scene with the phone booth we mentioned the car chase the limo i mean the limo is a big thing i mean that whole car chase sequence i love the way they use the limo and i also like the way to use the limo at the beginning of the movie when i mentioned that they were driving around the city and he saw how the city was falling apart i i like the shootout I thought it was actually a good car chase sequence for people that criticize them as not being a director who can direct action. I don't know. I guess that's it, really. I know they filmed at some famous prison, but I don't know much about the prison, so I can't really speak on it. That was so brief, um, anyway, that uh, I'm not really sure. It it was a nice intro. I'm not entirely sure that it was necessary, but it, it was nice. It does something. I think maybe it sets the mood, just like Simon said. He looks like he's coming out of a coffin kind of thing. I, I um, watched this movie twice this weekend because, A, I like it, and, B, it's not a very long movie. It's about an hour and 43 minutes long. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very quick, so that's that's always a, a positive. I think I feel like we've, we've mentioned basically all the – first of all, I feel like we've mentioned basically every moment in this movie. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's really all there in the in the weird – uh, in the weird dialogue and in the strange mannerisms of the performances and the, um, but again, above all else, the vibe, I remember the vibe more than the moments. If there's anything about this movie that I will remember, it's the stuff that I really don't, didn't get as to why it was. And purely from a, I don't know why they put that in the movie kind of thing. What's the, there are always shots in movies that if you're paying attention, you think like, Oh, this is going to be significant right. at some point. And then when they don't end up being significant in any way that you can see, then it, that sticks out to you, right? Like, and there's a moment that he sh- shares with the um, the lawyer on the sub. I believe it's on the subway that I just didn't understand. Um, this transition from like he's unbuttoned her shirt and he's feeling her up essentially. And it's, it lingers on that. So I think that there's going to be something important about this because there's so much lingering going on. And uh, and it's close-up, right? So we're using close-ups and it's it's going on for a little while. And then all of a sudden they get interrupted by this gang of you know street hoods who want to steal her purse and his wallet and he just ends up giving them money and then he also wants to give them jobs. That never really comes back. That scene never comes back into play in any way. And I'm not sure if it was just there to show how he connected with, with the you know, the neighborhood, <laughs> and was like giving people giving people opportunities or something. But why connect it with the sex scene, which is essentially a sex scene, but a weird one. But I think they they do mention it towards the end of the film. There's a line in which he says the Metro is a dangerous place for someone in his position to be. But the thing about Frank White is he's a character who feels more safe and secure in those environments, which is why he spends a good portion of the movie in those environments as opposed to living the high life in some fancy hotel type thing. The sex thing, I think it's because they hooked up in the Metro system before. That's the whole he wants to go back and relive that. Yeah, I just didn't, I don't know. I, I didn't understand the importance of that. I feel like if you wanted to establish him being on the Metro and that's kind of a safe haven, it would have been, I'm not sure that that scene did that for me. <laughs> but Or had anything to do with that. But anyway, those are the sorts of things that I'll remember. They're the little bizarre, to me, bizarre touches that I don't understand why they were there. And I'm, I'm not telling saying... you, it's, it's it's because they're trying to show how he connects to the black people in the neighborhood because that's the whole thing about the movie. Like they mentioned it several times about how he runs with the yeah. black gang 
gang no, members. I, I get that. I just don't. To me, it doesn't didn't work at all. <laughs> like, and the way it was written, I'm trying to understand how the writer thought it was going to work. I guess. Obviously, it did work for some people, maybe. But uh, uh, for me, I, I my whole thought wasn't like, oh, I can see what they were going for, but they kind of failed. It's I don't even see what you're going for if this is what you're trying to do. I, I like originally, like I said, I was going to pick New Jack City to talk about. I don't think New Jack City stands the test of time. I don't think New Jack City is a great movie. What's funny though is critics who hated King of New York back in the day love New Jack love City, New Jack like City. Roger Ebert, yeah. right? But New Jack City is like a watered down version of King of New York in terms of how it shows these characters, the neighborhood, New York, the drug scene, so on and so forth, the dirty cops, corrupt cops, et cetera, et cetera. But in New Jack City, Wesley Snipes is a drug kingpin. He's the big baddie of the movie. And he's also, of course, black. And he doesn't connect to any of the people in the neighborhood, any of the black people. It's all based on fear. King of New York is completely the flip. It's the opposite. It's the white man, Frank White, Christopher Walken's character, and how he connects to all of the black kids in the neighborhood. And I think that's what they're trying to show. Now, did it work? I guess not for you. For me, it did. But I think there's no um, coincidence that his name is Frank White. Like, I, I think, I think Simon, I think you said this. I don't know who said this. This is the, the blackest movie ever made by a white guy. And I think that's what he was trying to do. Someone said that. Someone, I don't forget who. I don't know if it was Tarantino or someone. Uh, if, if you're ever wondering, did Tarantino say that or did I personally say that? The answer is always me. I said it. I think No, I think it was you that said it. And then I said I thought Tarantino said it, but Tarantino didn't say it. No. <laughs> but with that, we should probably wrap this up. Simon, where can we find you online? I'm on Letterboxd sometimes. Less so these days. Uh, sometimes. Sucker Howl. Going in waves, maybe. Exactly. Um, all right, and you can find me, of course, on Goombastop.com. I am starting to write a few more movie reviews, so I'm actually doing something again, um, which is fun. And Rick, where can we find the podcast and you? Well, first of all, I don't do things like Letterboxd. Fuck that shit. That, that stuff's destroying <laughs> film criticism. You shouldn't use it. You should actually go read essays from websites that are begging for money because they're about to shut down. Anyhow... <laughs> The actual podcast is over at sortedcinema.com. You can go to goombastomp.com. You can find the podcast on just about every single podcasting service from iTunes to Amazon to Podbean. It's also on YouTube. For the people who do listen to us on YouTube, you should actually subscribe to the podcast too if you haven't already. And yeah, sortedcinema.com is where you'll find all the posts and links and everything you need to know. Sick. Sounds good. All right, we will be back next week. We'll see you then. It's taking so long, man. It's going to take a few minutes, all right? We ain't got a few minutes, man. We got to get busy. Why don't you do what you got to do so we can get busy, all right? favor, all right, here. Calm down, all right? Relax. Yo, I'm going to show you how to do this. I'm going to show you how to test this, man. Like that. Hecho bien, Paraguay. Ciento por ciento puro. Right. It's dope. It's dope, Tito. Yo, man, you ever get the feeling you was being watched? Got any uh, soda, man? Like some root beer or something? I heard my leg playing ball, man. I got these aspirins I want to take, you know? Yo, what the fuck is he? Yo, man, tell him to turn this shit off. What kind of help you got, man? Watching cartoons? Tell my man to turn the TV off and get me a soda. Un Coca-Cola, por favor, please. Nada. Whiskey una Coca-Cola. Yeah, and make sure it's cold. 
I like my shit cold, man, especially when I'm playing ball, man. You play ball, Tito? No, you don't look like you play no ball, but yo, nice gloves, though, man. I like those. You jump. Yeah, what's up? It's copacetic, man. Now, maybe you satisfied. No, maybe now I want to check out another one. Fuck, I look like Joe Neckbone, man. Trust ain't one of my stronger qualities, you know what I'm saying? You fucking disrespect me, man. I guarantee the shit not to hell with testing, and let's get to the large plus 10%. Did he say 10%? Wait a minute, Tito, man, we had a deal, man, what's up? What 10% you talking about, man? Transportation costs, amigo. I got expenses. Well, take the train if you got expenses and transportation, man. Why you want to be greedy, Tito? You fuck the sucking greed, that's our price. No one else even talks to you, goddamn motherfucking conos. Now take it or leave it. You are a Negro. You are a Negro. I'm black, too damn powerful, a still bad boy, and get an owl full, and if you die,